here gives this verse, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know, there's something powerful about the gathering of God's people when God's people say to God, God, do your work in me. God, have your way in my life that we're not just a a group of individuals, but together we come and we say to God, God, we want to worship you. We want to live our lives for you. We want to exalt you by the things that we say and the things that we do in the way that we live. And really, that's what Paul is giving instructions for, for the church to worship God in the things that the church says, in the things that the church does, in the way that the church lives. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works both to will and to work for his good pleasure. My hope is that at the end of this service, at the end of our time together, you have an idea of what that actually means. And then you have an idea of the way God's called us to walk and to live. Anybody seen the movie, movie Chronicles of Narnia? Anybody seen that movie? Anybody read the books, the Chronicles of Narnia? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So you might remember this scene where Lucy thought Aslan was a man. And Mr. Beaver chimes in. He says, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, a lion, a great lion. Oh, said Susan, I'd thought he was, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Miss Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I don't feel frightened when it comes, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This idea of coming before God is not something that should make us feel safe. Because we're standing before the God by which Paul just told us in the passage before that we're studying in, verses 9 through 12. This is the king who humbled himself that God exalted. This is the king that every knee shall bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the ferocious king of kings and Lord of lords. No one will, be, no one will feel safe before him. 
And our knees might be knocking because He is holy and righteous and we are undeserving sinners to stand before this great and mighty God whom we should be terrified with. Last week I said that this is a God who it would have been okay if He killed us in our sleep last night, but for the cross, Jesus Christ died for our sins. And He's great and He's good. And this good and great God is the one that lavishes His grace upon us today so that we might know what it means to walk in Him and to live for Him. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here is the big takeaway from today's message that I want for us all to leave with and to unpack during our time together. That God empowers the work of our obedience to shine the light of Christ in a dark world. God empowers the work of our obedience to shine the light of Christ into a dark world world. God empowered obedience. When you hear the word obedience, oftentimes, especially in the setting of the church, we think, what does God want from me, right? Maybe you think when you come to church today, what does God want from me? How much money does God want from me? Like, does God want me to give up this? Does God want me to do this? Maybe you have this list of things that, you know, week to week, you just dread coming to church because you think that at church we're going to hear something else that God wants from me. And I can tell you that the reason why God has brought us to gather today and the reason why God calls for our obedience is not because God wants obedience from us, but God wants obedience for us. God is a good God. He may not be safe, and that obedience might even call us to suffer. It might, us, it might call us to give up things, but it's not because God wants those things from us, but it's because God wants those things for us. Because we know God works all things for the good according to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. Because God loves you, God wants for you to walk in him, to be rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. That we would be strengthened in who God is and what he has done. And he says here, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That, that, that work out your salvation, it's got us thinking, you know, really, is, is God calling me to, to work for my salvation? Is that what the passage says, that I am now called to work for my salvation? Isn't salvation a free gift? Isn't it what Christ has already given? And to that I say yes. God doesn't say through the Apostle Paul to work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. It means that there's something that takes place by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross when it penetrates our heart. There's something that flows out of that work of salvation that God produces. And that God-produced work that flows from salvation 
is obedience. It's an unmistakable reality of the Christian faith. A Christian will obey the commands of God. Why? Because they've received the truth of God's grace, and the truth of God's grace changes us. It humbles us. We see that in the passage from Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 5, that Jesus Christ humbled himself. He emptied himself. That he went to the cross in obedience, even to a cross. The most ridiculous form of execution, meaning that he was ridiculed, he was mocked, he was humiliated, and he experienced that humiliation to the point of death on the cross, an instrument of Rome's conquering. Jesus Christ went there to turn it into a tool that God has shown this world that he has conquered any device any sin in death and judgment that is upon us. Jesus Christ was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Why would Paul say that there and then call for our obedience? I believe it's because the Apostle Paul is pointing us to the obedience of Jesus Christ to show us the kind of obedience that we are called to live. He gives us the perfect example of obedience in Jesus Christ and he says, now live like him. Live like Christ. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's a great danger if we don't understand that, uh, that, that working out our salvation is not a ladder in order to earn God, that we climb up in order to gain something from God, to make ourselves righteous before God, to go and say to God, God, look, I've made it up to you. Look what I've done. No, the gospel isn't a ladder. The gospel says that God came down and dwelt among us, not that we can work our way up to God. And on the other side, work out your salvation isn't let go and let God. Cruise control. Here we go. Let's just, let's just put this thing on cruise control and let's just ride it out because God's going to do everything that's required. Now, God does do everything that's required, but he calls us to cooperate with his work. And the working out of our salvation with fear and trembling is this work of God-empowered obedience. And that's what I want us to focus on here in the first three verses, verses 12 through 14, is that God works and we obey. God works and we respond. The working out of our salvation is what theologians call the the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Let me put that in layman's terms. That God is completely sovereign and in control of all things, that God works all things in accordance with his will and human responsibility as we play a part in it. We have a responsibility for our lives that we must take hold of, that we must understand and live for and regard And God's sovereignty and human responsibility, says one theologian, works like two pedals on a bike. God works, we respond. God works, we respond. God's work work shows that he's doing something in us. And when we know that God's doing something in us, then we respond by obedience. And our obedience says that, God, my life belongs to you. 
Author and pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there's no greater test of the Christian faith than the way we respond when God says to obey. There's no greater test of the Christian faith than the way we respond when God says to obey. So we have these incredible theological passages, like the one that we just read, uh, just studied last week in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, we read that statement, which is jam-packed with theological truth, truth about God that's meant to inform our life. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if you respond towards obedience in a way that says, God, I, I don't want to do it. God, I don't want to follow you. He says the problem isn't your obedience, the problem is your belief. There's a breakdown in belief because you don't believe that to be true. Because if you believed that to be true, then you would obey it. You would necessarily see God's working through that truth and then obey it. The great test of faith is how we respond to the claims that God makes upon our life when God says you are mine. It's not about us saying, God, we are yours. It's about us believing and living out the truth that God says you are mine. And because I am his, I belong to him and I live for him. And I, like Jesus Christ, am a servant to do whatever God has called me to do. And so evidence of God's working in us is that we respond by obedience. And that obedience might be costly. That obedience may work to our benefit, that we might see it in some ways, that sometimes uh, obedience that's, that's seemingly easy is obedience that works towards our comfort, works towards our control of things, But where obedience gets hard is when we don't see the whole picture, right? When we know that sometimes God's called us to do something where people might get mad at us. When we know that God's called us to do something that not everybody agrees with. When we know that God's called us to do something that may make us uncomfortable. We could lose our job, we could lose our well-being, but yet... Obedience is a faithfulness to King Jesus and nothing and no one else. The church in Philippi would have understood this because the church in Philippi was a colony of Rome, or Philippi, the city, was a colony of Rome, and it was King Nero that every knee bowed and tongue confessed, that Nero was Lord. And Nero demanded this Roman colony's unquestioned obedience And what the Apostle Paul is saying, there's a greater king than Nero, and his name is Jesus. And there's a greater allegiance that God is calling you to by which to live by. And the obedience is to Jesus Christ. This is the obedience that God thus empowers for us. 
Therefore, my beloved, as you always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Uh, I, I read this to give us a little contextual background of what's going on in the church of Philippi. Remember, Paul is in prison, and he's writing this letter in prison. And Paul, when he planted a church, would leave that church with leaders, and those leaders would thus work with that church and, and, and see God's moving power in that church through their leadership, which is the godly authority that, that he put in place. And so Paul's saying, now that I'm gone and you obeyed in my presence, your call is to still obey. Actually, even much more in my absence. So as a parent, I know that, you know, the, the true test is not whether our kids obey when we're right there, but whether they obey when we're gone, right? Like when we're in church on Sunday and we leave them to the kids in the children's ministry, right? We're all like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. How are they doing? Um, but the true test of obedience for children is how they respond when the cat's away, Right? And this is also very much so true of God's church with Paul, who was an incredible leader. And he left it with godly men and women. He's saying that your obedience still matters, and it matters very, very much. If you continue down the passage, and you look at verse 13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'm so thankful for this part of this verse because Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? But he doesn't leave it there. He says, for it is God who works in you. So he's saying there is a work by which God is calling us to cooperate with us, but God empowers that work and he empowers that work in two ways. One, by our will, and two, by our ability. So when God works to empower our will, he changes our desires. There's this work that God does in changing and reshaping the desires of our heart so that our desires match the desires of God. It's something that's quite miraculous. When I became a Christian, this was one of the most noticeable things that took place in my life because I didn't want to do the same things that I did. Because I didn't want to say the same things that I said. Because I didn't want to cause the same problems and troubles in the same way I I did. Because God began to reshape my desires. And I couldn't... Where does this come from? I mean, it was almost instantaneous that God began to change those desires. He begins to match our desires up with his. And then number two, God changes and God moves in our ability to carry out his obedience. So God provides new desires and God also provides the ability to walk in obedience. And how does God do that? through the power of his Holy Spirit. In Romans, it says, in verse, chapter 8, verse 13 and 14, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
So there's this work by which the Spirit empowers us to say no to a life of disobedience and to say yes to a life of obedience, which thus puts to death the deeds of the flesh, the, the sinful heart and desires that we have. This work of the God's Spirit empowers us to say yes to Jesus and say no to sin. The Holy Spirit is the one who allows us the conviction to say, I should go this way instead of this way. God's Spirit is the one who is, allows us to say what's most important. Is it more important to honor God or is it more important to honor man? And he gives us the ability to carry out that which needs to be done, that which needs to be accomplished. The God is so passionate about your holiness that he both gives you the new desires and also the ability to walk in him. And what requires of us is our cooperation. That we say, God, I will do what you call me to do. I am your servant. God cares so much about a life of obedience for us. Because God's care of this life of obedience is our theology in practice, what we believe about God that's walked out. From worship to, it's true worship. They say that, that theology leads to doxology, meaning what we believe about God leads to a life lived for God that is our spiritual worship. Philippians 2.14 Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Moving on, we see that God works and we respond. Point number two is that we shine the light of Christ in a dark world. We shine the light of Christ in a dark world. You would think that after Paul's deeply theological statement about what Jesus Christ has done, that Paul might go after some really, really heavy, hard-hitting sins, right? Stop fornicating. Stop lust. Stop this. Stop that. But actually what the Apostle Paul really says is, do all things without grumbling or disputing. There's something powerful in the unity of the church when what we say with our mouth actually shines the light of Christ to a lost and broken world. Grumbling and disputing is, is that which can cause significant, significant disunity in the church. It, we, we saw it in, in, in it, the Israelites when they grumbled and disputed against the leadership in that time, Moses. In fact, they were ready to kill Moses. Now, these people had seen amazing things that God had provided, manna from heaven, the water from the rock, and they continued to grumble and dispute. And what God calls us to is not towards grumbling or disputing, but towards unity. And he says it in Philippians, uh, early on in Philippians 2, it's humility. Humility leads to us saying, God, I, I want to work well with one another. I want, to, I want to respond appropriately to the people that you've put around me. My kids 
uh, Camden and Adeline and Lily, they're often quite spoiled. We have Disney passes, and, and, and one of the things that we like to do is on Fridays after school, we like to take them to one of the theme parks. So we get in the van, and we drive to one of the theme parks, and what, what, the, the, this thing that should be like so special is actually becoming quite dull for them. You know, it, it's like they get to go to the theme park every week. Well, you know, on the way there, they're fighting in the car, and then we get on the safari ride, right, at Animal Kingdom. Anybody been on the safari ride? Like, that's a great ride. And so the kids are there, and they're already, like, fighting about who's going to sit on the ends. And so we get in the car, and the kids are, we get in the safari ride, and the kids get in the aisle, and and somebody doesn't get on the end because I've got three kids and two of them are on this end and that end and this one is really upset. Now, it could, be, it could be any one of them because it happens. This time it was Adeline that was really upset, but you can just change the kid out. Whoever would have been in the middle would have been really upset. So the first five minutes of the safari ride, the people behind us were actually laughing at us because these kids weren't even looking at the giraffes or looking at the elephants. They were just fighting. They were arguing about who got to sit where and who didn't and why they deserved it, and they were just grumbling. And this grumbling caused the people to behind us like, what, what spoiled kids? I'm like, we have annual passes. Oh, okay, they have annual passes. And, and, but this grumbling and disputing, it, it said something about them and it says something about us is that they don't enjoy what they've been given. Right? It, it, it's discontentment. And when discontentment sets in in the church, it's so easy to give ourselves to grumbling and disputing. But when we behold the grace of God, it says we have always have it better than we deserve. What is there to argue about? You're an animal kingdom for crying out loud. The rest of the world would love to be here. This is the happiest place on earth. And here you are crying about it. But oftentimes, we can be the same way. I didn't get it this way. I didn't get it that way. This song wasn't said, saying the preacher said this or this happened. But this grumbling, disputing is what dims the light of Christ to a dark world when our, our, our light should shine brightly. And that's why the, the Apostle Paul argues for this. That the light of Christ would shine so brightly In verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That there's this work of Jesus that through God's empowering of our obedience shines brightly to a world that's in darkness. Now the Apostle Paul isn't condemning a dark world. Actually, the Apostle Paul is seeking to love this dark world because it's the light of Christ that shines, that allows us to properly show this dark or this crooked, twisted generation the light of Christ. A Christian's life should be consistent with Jesus even when it's inconsistent to the world around us. Now, it it, it just so happens that we're in this time period where there's a lot of, of things in our nation right now that we could rightfully grumble and complain about. 
right? By the way, our country's being led or not led by this, by that, by incomes being down. You name it, you could, you could say that there's something to complain about right now. Well, the Christian is called to live with the consistency of Jesus Christ that says, my hope isn't in the world, but my hope is in God. And because my hope is in God, I'm a citizen of heaven. And we are called to walk pure and blameless as the children of God, because we are not citizens of this world, but we're citizens of another world that shines the light of Christ into a dark world by which this world can see us. We were at a prayer meeting just last a couple weeks ago, and it was a really incredible time where we gathered on a Wednesday. There's probably about 20 of us in the room just praying for God's work in our church. It was so powerful. And at the end of this prayer, there was a gal that sat there. Uh, uh, she was, she, it was her first time coming to our, our prayer gathering. And she sat quiet most of the time. But at the end of the prayer gathering, it was so powerful because she prayed, God, thank you for reaching out to me through this church on social media right when I needed it the most. Thank you. It was God using this church to shine the light of Jesus Christ into her darkness wherever that was at. She, got, she, she prayed, God, thank you that I know I'm not perfect but that you see me as perfect in Jesus Christ and that you're making me more like him. This is God's work changing us and molding us into the image of God. See, my, my prayer is, is that the light of Christ continues to work through our church to show more people the light of Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? We love God and we love one another really, really well. We take steps of, we, we take steps of sacrifice to say, God, I'll do whatever it takes to walk in you, to be obedient to you. And Jesus says that the world will know that you are my disciples when we obey him, when we love one another, and that the world will know that Jesus Christ is Lord and our light will shine bright by our obedience to God and our love for one another. It's the greatest commandment, love God. And Jesus says the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. You want to shine brightly in a dark world? Love God and love others. And this is the call of the Apostle Paul to the church for their obedience. That they would be blameless. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul wants for the church to hold fast to the word of life. What is that? What is the word of life that the Apostle Paul is saying that they should hold fast to? Well, he's been talking about the gospel a whole lot in Philippians. This work of Jesus Christ that happens from start to finish. Hold fast to the gospel. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. 
that we would focus on who Jesus Christ is, that he would be the one that we primarily focus on. Because if he is our focus, there's no room for grumbling or complaining. But there's, there's only room for us to give praise and glory and honor to God and to love one another with our words and our actions that God has called us to, to hold fast that word of life so that the Apostle Paul says, I'll be proud. I'll be proud of you in that. Now, this is not the pride that he was just condemning early on in the chapter. This is a pride that comes with knowing that his people are following God. Now, now there's no, no greater joy for a pastor than to experience the joy of knowing that their people are falling after God. And I want to commend you for that, church. There's much to be commended. But I would say in this last year, one of the things I've seen God grow in you is a deeper passion to walk in obedience with God's Word. To know God's Word and to live out God's Word. To seeing that being more fully in your life has been something that I just want to commend you on. You're, getting, you're gathering together to study together. You're gathering together to allow God's Word to shape you. And that is to be commended in you. If there is an area that I would say that, that we can grow in as a church, the area that I say that we can grow in as a church is believing that this church is a church that God is doing a work in through me. It means that God can use you right here in Cross Point downtown in the lives of others. And you're needed here. You're needed here. God has placed each and every one of you here for a reason. And that is to touch the lives of others. So this work that God has done in you with his word is a work that God seeks to do through you as well into the life and body of Crosspoint downtown. Each and every week God brings people that are from different life circumstances, different walks, and the thing that God has called us to in this work of the church to shine the brightness into this world is to gather the people to worship Jesus Christ. And there's no greater thing than that, that we could call to one another to live lives of worship. That's why we meet in community groups. That's why we gather each and every Sunday because we want to see this work not only happen in us, but we want to happen, we want it to happen in one another. So we are ferocious people. People that are passionate about seeing God exalted in the lives of our brothers and sisters. And where someone is struggling, we come alongside of them and we encourage them and we lift them up. Where someone is sick or needy, we pray for them or we help them as appropriate. Everyone here has a great responsibility to one another. This call to work out your salvation with fear and trembling is not one that's just individual. It's corporate. That we would work out our salvation together. That we would see that one another are passionately following Jesus Christ. And we would encourage and love one another appropriately there. Verse 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul closes this section by calling us to rejoice in sacrifice. 
He says, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is saying that your faith has produced a sacrifice. And it's your faith that's the sacrifice. Because your belief in God has empowered your obedience. And he's saying, if I can be poured out on top of that, a sacrificial drink offering. The, in those days, they would pour out a drink offering on the ground on a, on a, on a special place or on an altar. And it, was, it, would be a, it would be given as a gift or an aroma to God. And Paul's saying, it's your faith that's the sacrifice. And if I could be poured out on top of that, if Paul's time in prison would lead to death and he were to die, He's saying rejoice in that because my life is poured out so that your faith would be counted to God as an acceptable sacrifice of obedience. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 that he is convinced that God has called him to the church of Philippi for their progress and joy in the faith. Convinced of that. If God calls me to live outside of being in this prison cell, if, if somehow I make it out of this prison cell, I exist for your progress and joy in the faith. And this is why Crosspoint Church exists. So that you, church, can live your lives by faith in God and walking and rejoicing in sacrificial obedience. That's why we exist. So that you can live the way that God has called you to live. So that you can be instructed in the way of Jesus Christ and walk in that and live in that. And Paul says, in that I rejoice. In that I rejoice. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Where do we go from here? Where do we begin to obey right now? I think God calls us to this in three ways. Number one is we believe. We believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We believe like Lucy was, was we demonstrated in the beginning that Lucy knew that Aslan was a great and mighty king and that this king wasn't safe. And like Peter, we say, oh, I can't wait to meet him because he is a good king. God is a good king. And if we believe that, we'll trust that everything he does is for our good. Number two, we walk in repentance. Repentance is acknowledging that what we have, the, the things that have gotten us to, the, to this point, this point of disobedience or this point where we dishonor God aren't going to get us to where God wants us to be. And so we walk and we turn and go in a different way. That we would turn and that we would walk in the way that God has called us to. And number three, we obey. Where God says, 
where God is calling us to obey right now in our lives? What are the particular things that God is calling you to obey in? Remember that God isn't asking us for those things because he wants something from us, but he wants obedience for us. That we would do what God wants us to do in order to honor him and live for him. Here's the thing that's really important to understand even in that. Maybe as you have as you've been in this and you see that, man, God is the one who starts salvation. God is the one who also empowers our obedience. But what happens when I don't obey? God is the one who grants forgiveness even when you don't obey. So even now, maybe you've been walking in disobedience. It's the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that brings you back. It's the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that humbles you, that changes you, and that molds you into the image of God. And it's the obedience of Jesus Christ that God seeks to use in our life through that forgiveness to bring us to our knees and say, God, would you change me? Would you use me? And that's why we take communion because we acknowledge that we haven't been blameless or innocent, but Jesus Christ has. And so we take the bread, the broken body that represents, the broken bread that represents the broken body of Jesus Christ. And we take the cup which represents his blood poured out and we receive that forgiveness because Jesus Christ has done it. Something that we cannot do. Father, we thank you so much for your work. We thank you so much, God, that you died the death that we deserve so that we can live the life that God only you deserve. We want to be like shining stars in this dark world. Would you empower us? Would you cause us to live for you? And God, help us each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.